The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations and the following message comes from The Guardian Network a national community of preferred financial representatives and agencies dedicated to helping Americans live with greater financial confidence through a collaborative planning approach. Have you thought about what the cash for that Insta-worthy burger or latte you ordered out this week might buy you tomorrow? The Guardian Network created this cool, useful digital experience that can help you to see how your spending today lines up with your priorities. Play the cash stash dash at livingconfidently.com forward slash Cash Dash. Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Um, I am joined today by Chris Turchansky. Uh, Chris is the president of ATB Investor Services, where he has the privilege of leading a diverse team of investment, insurance, and support experts who are committed to making investing work uh, for those in Alberta, Canada. He holds a commerce degree from the University of Alberta, an MBA from Athabasca, as well as a CFA and an accredited investment fiduciary. Uh, throughout his career in the wealth industry, it has continued to get more and more complex, and yet he believes that one thing has remained constant, and that is the importance of trust. I couldn't agree more. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you very much, Daniel. So Chris and I got the chance to work together uh, quite closely when I was out in Canada in the summer. As a quick aside, uh, for <laughs> those of you listening in the U.S., there is no finer place to be in the summer than Western Canada. Uh, so can't can't recommend it enough. You can. Uh, it's it's snowing there last week. Uh, is that right, Chris? And it's 85 here. So don't go in don't go in the winter. But uh, <laughs> in the yeah. summer, there's no better place to be. In the summer, it's great. Our, our fall so far seems to be a bit hijacked by winter, but. Oh, geez. Well, best of luck. So, Chris, what is, uh, what's one fun fact about you, one interesting thing about you that, that doesn't appear on your more formal bio? Yeah, so it's funny. I grew up with two brothers. So there was my mom and my dad and myself and two other brothers. So Really, we dominated my mom and uh, oftentimes would outvote her and get to to do all of the sort of male-dominated things. And then uh, as luck would have it, I've got a lovely wife and two girls, and now I'm outvoted at every single turn in terms of the family activities. So it's uh, it's funny. Life has a way of evening itself out, I think, in the long run. I was going to say, life has a way of maintaining that balance. And so... Uh, <laughs> That karmic retribution has come your way. Well, you have a beautiful family, and thank you again for being here. So, Chris, you you recently made a bold move, and you wrote an open letter to the citizens of Alberta that began, Dear Alberta, we don't like what's happened in our industry. So what's not to like, and what led you to make this bold decision? Yeah, first and foremost, I think, you know, as a number of industries have struggled with sort of regulation and we continue to see our regulators struggle in terms of adding more regulation. And then what became clear to us is as long as we as an industry, were looking to do the bare minimum and just not trying to comply with the spirit of what the regulators were going to do, that we would probably never get to the point of really putting clients ahead of ourselves 
So it was the letter was all about saying, you know, we believe that change has to come from within the industry and that we want to be part of that change and we want to lead that change. And in terms of why, why now and why, what are some of the reasons? I think as we saw more and more people doing the bare minimum, but we also see things like the lack of transparency, the fact that complexity has grown in the investment industry, you know, at, at a rapid pace, the fact that we see more and more clients either not saving enough for retirement or not achieving their retirement goals and dreams and, and those things. So our belief was we have to lead the change, which really meant for some scary moments internally as it meant we had to open the door and, and look in all the sort of cracks of our own house to make sure before we said that we wanted to be part of this change that we felt had to come from within the industry. Well, it's the, it's the kind of leadership that I feel like the industry needs because, yeah, let's let's be honest, historically, not everything has uh, been client-centric, right? Not everything has been clients first. And I think that ATB certainly has that mentality uh, and that you have that mentality as a leader. So I find that the remnants of perhaps the bad behavior of some financial institutions linger in the minds of some everyday investors and that that gets projected onto doom and gloom about our industry. So I had the experience recently, my daughter wrote a letter about what she wanted to be when she grew up, and she said she wanted to be a financial advisor. And she wrote this whole cute thing about, uh, you know, how some people weren't saving enough for retirement and how she was going to help uh, people make better financial decisions. You know, she's eight years old. And so basically, she's just parroting what she hears from her uh, lame dad at the dinner <laughs> table. But so I posted this thing uh, onto, onto social media, which was perhaps my, my first mistake, and mostly got really positive uh, feedback, but had one or two people say, how, you know, how sad that your daughter would want to go into this terrible industry. Uh, and I find that there is a lot of negativity about our industry. And some people point to things like the 2% attrition rate year over year among financial advisors. Uh, there's projected to be 100,000 fewer advisors in the U.S. Uh, in the next decade. A lot of people point to the uh, robo-advisor threat. And yet you maintain a very rosy uh, vision of the future for our industry. Why are you so high on financial advice as a career going forward? So first, I, I think that's a great story about your daughter. It's funny, my 10-year-old wants to be the Prime Minister of Canada after probably similar hearing stories around the dinner table. She's decided she wants to be Prime Minister. But when I look at the industry, I, I think, to, to your point earlier, there's been a number of things that get the headlines, and there's still a number of really... Uh, a few minority that, you know, do a really, really bad job. And then, you know, they grab the headlines and, and, you know, whether it's people that have been advised to go into Bitcoin recently or other things are what's grabbing that headline. But when you sort of move the dust away from that and clear that off of the windshield and, you know, when you start to look at, you know, the fact that the investment world is getting more and more complex and to truly help people sort of, work through that complexity, I think the role an advisor plays is absolutely critical. But that advisor has to evolve from the advisor that we saw 10 years ago. That advisor has to be someone who's willing to put clients' interests first. 
And I think when advisors are willing to do that, it's not only a rewarding career for them, it will really make a difference in the lives of investors. So I've been a vocal advocate in my writing and in my speaking for using advisors as a behavioral coach, but I'm, I'm similarly quick to say, and I heard you just say it, that not all advisors are created equal. And, you know, I probably get this question more than just about anything else is, okay, you've, you've been clear that advisors can help steer me towards making uh, better behavioral decisions, but this is all sort of contingent on me getting the right advisor. So if you are speaking to a potential client, how would you help them discern uh, between the right kind of advisor and the wrong kind of advisor? Yeah, that's a great question. I think first and foremost, the foundation for that relationship needs to be built on trust. And I think trust is critical for a number of things. I think years ago, that relationship didn't need to be focused on trust because at the time the focus was this belief that your advisor could earn you a higher rate of return than anyone else. And, and now, you know, trust is that critical piece because what you need an advisor to do is a lot of times to guide you in a way that you yourself may not want to go. And if that trust isn't there, it becomes very easy to go down that path and sort of discount what your advisor says. So I think trust is first and foremost the cornerstone. I think an advisor who's willing to openly talk about, you know, some of the challenges that are in the industry and some of their own limitations, whether those challenges are the lack of transparency. So the advisor is almost over the top transparent and talking to you about not only the fees that you pay, but why you pay the fees that you pay and the reason that they're there. I think a client uh, or an advisor who's open to talk to you about potential and the inherent conflicts of interest that we have in this industry is absolutely critical. And then finally, I think it's an advisor that doesn't try and give clients what they want, which what a lot of clients want is with the market and investing being uncertain, they want someone to provide them certainty. And it's absolutely impossible to be able to judge the actions of billions of people, thousands of governments, and the pace of innovation so it's not an advisor that says that they know the future, that they know the impossible, but one that, quite frankly, will tell you they don't know. And this is what you need to do because of that. So I think it begins with trust. And then it's really based on transparency, talking about conflicts and really talking about what they can do and what they can't do are is critical place to start. So, you know, what I heard there was humility, transparency, and trust. And, you know, it's interesting because this runs, these are all fabulous uh, things to look for an advisor. But in some ways, I think we need to be aware of our humanity because time and again, research <laughs> that people want someone who's really confident. So, you know, the, the good advisor is the advisor who tells you, I don't know what's going to happen in the next two years in the market. But the advisor that our flawed psychology wants is the one that's going to tell us exactly how it's going to all break down and, and show a compelling narrative, uh, no matter how false that narrative may turn out to be. So I think we need to be aware of the, kind of the behavioral pitfalls that we can fall into. Um, I also found uh, a research that found that less than one in five people knows what they pay their advisors. Uh, and it's really crazy to me that there's just very little conversation about how, how advisors get compensated, what people are paying. 
And so looking for someone who's radically transparent about their, you know, how you're paying them, because it's not, it's not a charity, right? So someone who's radically honest about that is, I think, another kind of person that you're looking for. Um, Chris, I love the word humility that you use there, because I think it is humility, to be honest, but to do that in a way that still instills confidence, I think is the trick. And that doesn't mean that telling clients that we know what the rate of return is, or we know what the market's going to do tomorrow, but you're instilling confidence that the process that you're going to follow, the focus on their long-term goals is really what's critical. So I love that word that you used in terms of that humility. Well, then I, I know that one of your, uh, one of your leadership principles is balancing confidence and humility. And so, as you said, you can be absolutely humble about the, the outcomes uh, but absolutely confident in the process, you know, to say, look, I don't know what the next two or three years is going to look like, but I know for a fact that a good process looks like, you know, automating my investing, diversifying my assets, managing my behavior, et cetera, right? We can be very, very confident in the process, even when there's a great deal of uh, uncertainty and warranted humility about, about the outcome. So, Chris, something that I heard you say here and that I saw you tweet recently uh, was about this idea of giving investors what they need versus what they want. So, what are the, where's the breakdown there? What, what do investors think they need, or, or excuse me, versus what do they really need? What are some of uh, investors' most common misconceptions uh, when it comes to how to properly engage an advisor? Yeah, I think we were just talking about it in, in, investors are looking for confidence, they're looking for certainty. Um, And sometimes what they need is someone to tell them, and to be honest, that they don't know that the future is uncertain. But by following these key principles, you just mentioned a number of them, diversification, controlling your savings, watching your fees, doing those things uh, is critical. It's, you know, sometimes when, whether it's fear, or whether it's greed, that's taking over from a client, I think a job of the advisor of the future is not to sit back and, and just tell clients what they should do. And when they disagree, let them move ahead with that. It's, you know, being forceful and, and believing in the advice that you provide and, and making sure that the clients don't do that. And a lot of times I think advisors are afraid to push back against clients because, you know, a client ultimately can vote with their feet and go somewhere else. So, I think our job is to give clients what they need, not necessarily what they want, similar to what my doctor would do when I go into his office. And if I'm sick, I may say, you know, I I think I need just some medication. And he may say, what you need is rest and you need to eat better or you need to exercise more. Those may not be things I want to hear, but those are things I need to do. And I think as advisors, that's what we have to do. We have to be willing to provide uh, advice that clients need to hear, not that they want to hear. Yeah, I know that my father, who is a financial advisor, I know for a fact that he has lost business uh, over basically refusing to give people what they wanted, but which he knew they, they didn't need or something that might be be painful or, or bad for their portfolio. So it really takes the courage and the ability to walk away from that from that paycheck to say, look, I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let you hurt yourself. I'm not going to let you lead lead this boat astray. It really takes some some courage there. So this the second half of that. Just, 
further to that, Daniel, I, I think as an industry, that's where we have to step up as an industry and reward that behavior that whether it's your dad or there's lots of great advisors out there that do that. But too often as an industry, you know, we look at that as a failure and, you know, ask that advisor, where's your next sale coming from? How did you pass up on that sale? And I think those are some of the changes that we need, not only to see at an advisor level, but at an industry level that this rich belief in by providing clients the right advice, there'll be more clients than any advisor could ever want to have. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, uh, sort of a follow-on question to that is, where do you think advisors add the most value and how do you begin to quantify that value? Yeah, so I, I think this is where we've seen the biggest change over the last two decades. I think two decades ago, you know, people looked for advisors to create a portfolio or find the, the latest or greatest next performing stock that they can invest into where they would be able to outperform their neighbor. And I think we've really seen a shift from that to the need for advisors to become behavioral coaches. And I know we talked a lot about that. And I think those were your actual terms that we used or that you used over the summer, Daniel, is I think advisors have to morph into these behavioral coaches to help clients be successful and realize that no longer is their role just to pick the, the best performing stock or bond, which is impossible to do over the long run. So your relationship's already on a sort of shaky ground, but really to become a behavioral coach to help investors deal with the media hype and fads and the fear, the greed that they read, and really to educate clients and provide counsel and keep them focused on their long-term goals. So... It's fascinating because I've written a, t a ton about this, perhaps more than just about anything else. Chapter two of my book, The Laws of Wealth, talks a great deal about this. And to sum it all up, there's, there's a large body of research that shows that on average, people who work with financial advisors do about 3% better than those who don't. And that owes almost exclusively to hand-holding behavioral coaching uh, and preventing people from from making a poor decision, uh, but you know, if a fund had outperformed by three percent a year over its lifetime, I mean, people would be falling over each other to try and put their money in that fund. And yet, when it comes by way of of coaching and handholding and and error prevention, it's not nearly as as sexy. So, how do we, as an industry, knowing what we know? Um, make behavior as appealing as something simple like return chasing? Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I think, you know, being close to the 10-year anniversary of the, the credit crisis, and I think there's great moments in, in what's provided sort of longer-term proof points that we have to talk about, whether it was an investor who was invested in the S&P going back to you know, sort of the beginning to the middle of September and over the next six months, you know, going through the tremendous fear of seeing their portfolio go down close to 45%, but through proper behavioral coaching um, and helping people see their long-term goals and stick to those long-term goals, they've been rewarded over the, the next nine and a half months or nine and a half years, sorry, nine and a half months 
nine and a half years with over 11%. So we've got to do a better job of telling those stories and talking to clients and, you know, taking notes and reminding clients of the times where emotions started to get the better of clients, when clients were fearful, when clients are greedy and center them back on those decisions that we've helped them provide. And I think there's a quantitative piece that we can do better as an industry talking about that, which makes it easier to compare the advice to the mutual fund. But then there's also the emotional piece that I think we have to do. And I think it's when you have that relationship built on trust and you're constantly talking to your clients, I think it's easier to bring those things to the forefront. You know, my favorite piece of psychological literature ever looked at the efficacy of various forms of treatment. So it looked at you know, the different schools of psychology, whether it's cognitive behavioral or existential or whatever it may be, looked at the different schools of thought and said, basically, who helps their clients the most? And what they found was uh, it didn't matter. Like, it didn't matter what sort of school you, you came from. It only mattered the level of rapport and trust that existed between you and that client. So, I think there's an analogy there for our world because the best financial advisors, let's be candid, a lot of the advice they give is going to center around five or six sort of basic principles that you're going to get anywhere you go. I think the differences between the kind of advice you're going to get between good financial advisors occurs sort of only at the margins. So this word trust keeps coming up and it really comes down to who is someone you like enough? Who is someone you trust enough so that when we get another great recession, and we will, right, that that when those tough times come around, you like that person and you have enough rapport that you will listen to them and see through those hard times uh, because, you know, advice is cheap, advice is easy, trust is much more difficult. So if you have that, I think you've got something special with your with your advisor. Yeah, I, I love, you know, how you, you boil it down that w- when you look at it, there's only f- sort of five or six, four or five, it doesn't matter, of key pieces of actual investment advice that will be the right advice for 95% of the people. But it's really helping people manage through their emotions to stick with that advice or to follow that advice that is critical. And unless you have trust, it becomes very difficult to do that. And I think you know, as clients were, you know, investors are looking for this silver bullet that no one else has, that their advisor has this secret sauce that is going to determine their success when nothing further can be be the truth, right? That the secret sauce is that trust, is that willingness to have frank and difficult conversations. And I think as an industry, until we move away from this belief that there's a silver bullet out there that we have to differentiate ourselves, not on trust, but um, some sort of formula or mechanics or advice that no one else can. I think uh, we're going to be in trouble as an industry. I, I always encourage people who are looking for an advisor to ask for a 15 minute get to know you meeting. You know, look at three or four different advisors, uh, spend 10 or 20 minutes in their office at, at no cost. And just see who you click with the best, because that is, uh, again, this sort of under the radar, great predictor 
of how well you're going to listen to them when, when you need that, when you need that most. So Chris, I'm, I'm reading a couple of books right now that are blowing my mind. I'm, I'm really into artificial intelligence. I'm, I'm really having a fun time thinking about the future of, of our industry and industry more broadly. Uh, one of these books says that we're going to have artificial general intelligence by 2045. Uh, kind of freaks me out. Don't know what my kids are going to do. <laughs> but it makes me think about the future of our industry. And as you look to the future and the future, uh, the advisor of the future, how do you think uh, the advisor of the future will look different than than today's advisor. What will they do that's a little bit different than the way we go to market today? Yeah, so I think first and foremost, the advisor of the future, it's going to become younger. I think as an industry, we have this challenge with this aging advisor population. And to our comments earlier, you know, right now is the the role of an advisor isn't one that's overly sought after. So you know, I, I think as an industry, we have to help younger people get attracted to, you know, the industry. And I think younger people have to be able to use technology to provide that behavioral coaching to, you know, become that coach, that consultant to clients as they go along their journey to making decisions and, you know, to narrow it down and to reduce the complexity uh, to help clients ultimately become successful. So I think it's, it will begin and end with behavioral coaching. I think it's interesting, and I'm not sure in the U.S., but in Canada right now, to become registered or licensed, you have to take a course. And I think the course is a course that was applicable 10 or 15 years ago, as the course has very little to nothing to do with sort of behavioral coaching. How do you become a better listener? How do you understand clients at the deepest level? Has all to do with how do you dissect a company? How do you create a portfolio? And I think those are the skills that when we look at the advisor of the future will become less and less important. And in a lot of ways will become commoditized, but it's that advice, that relationship is going to be really critical to become that behavioral coach. It's, it's interesting because I, I'm no longer registered, but I went through the process of becoming an advisor in the States. And I can tell you, First of all, it took me two days of studying to pass the test. So I took, I started <laughs> two days before the test and I did, did just fine. So there's, there's not a ton on there. It's not a very difficult test, which I hope will change in the future. I hope there will be a higher bar for entry into the profession. And the second thing is that I can confirm that, that there's nothing about this behavioral connection and behavioral coaching piece. You know, it's really uh, all about how to figure a price to earnings ratio and, you know, what a bond does. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're sort of missing the point there. That's necessary, but not sufficient. That's, that's half of what we need to know. Uh, but I think the advisor of the future will, A, hopefully have a, a higher bar and, and B, part of that higher hurdle will be a piece around emotional connection and emotional intelligence. Yeah, and I think you made an important point that it's not that advisors don't have to know that, that you know, those important aspects, the sort of technical parts of the job. But I think that's the part that that really is just entrance to it. And that that's the part that technology um, will really start to to sort of displace from that standpoint. So I, I think it's critical that advisors know that and, and have that, but I really believe it's that focus on the client, that behavioral coaching, uh, that will be what the advisor of the future needs. 
So dur during my time in Calgary, uh, every time I would walk to the refrigerator to get a Diet Coke, which was very, very often, I would pass uh, this sign that talked about this audacious belief uh, that financial services organizations can make the world a better place and positively impact the happiness uh, of our clients. Now, how do we take this from nice slogan to real world impact? What do we know about money and the work that we do that can have a lasting real world impact on the happiness and the lives of our clients? So I think first and foremost, that needs to be the audacious goal that we have, um, not only for our company, but for the entire industry is that how do we take, you know, wealth and money and, and topics that people don't like spending a lot of time talking about that are sort of taboo in a lot of places to talk, not only bring that to the open, but how do we help clients not only achieve their goals, but ensure that their goals result in happiness, right? I, I think as an industry or, you know, as an advisor, helping a client, if his goal is, you know, he needs 50, 60, 70, $100,000, it doesn't matter to retire off of, and we help them achieve that. And we're a great behavioral coach along the way. But when they enter retirement, if their retirement is absolutely miserable, despite having the financial means to, to live the retirement that they wanted, I don't think we as an advisor or as a company, as an industry, have succeeded. We have to help clients make this connection between their wealth and their happiness. And that's unique and different for everyone. So it's not a one size fits all. And you can't do that. You can't even come close to doing that unless you're one of the advisors of the future or really spending time to get to know clients that are not only listening to clients at a deep level, but asking clients great questions to help them solve that piece of the puzzle. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. This is something we're seeing more and more of, which is, first of all, there's a, a large a subset of the population that's not prepared for retirement, so that brings uh, you know a host of a host of stressors if you're if you're strapped for cash in retirement. But even among those who have prepared financially for retirement, they're maybe not prepared uh, psychologically. They haven't done the hard work of figuring out what's going to give shape and meaning and purpose to their life. Uh, when they're no longer surrounded uh, by their colleagues and they're no longer working that nine to five job. So I think this is another place I, I absolutely agree with you uh, that it can very much become the role of an advisor to help you figure out how money figures into a happy life holistically uh, and realize that that money does a lot to take away worry and to take away pain, but it does very little to add happiness. So how can we take away the pain of not having enough money, uh, but how can we know our clients well enough uh, that we can Im uh, embed some of that happiness into the process I, is, I think, a, a difficult advisor of the future type conversation. Yeah, and I think when you start to, to frame it and look at it that way, you see that the advisor of the future is in a lot of ways far more challenging than the advisor who used to sit down in front of spreadsheet after spreadsheet and Bloomberg terminal after Bloomberg uh, sort of screen. It's how do you have those conversations? How do you earn so much trust that you can ask a client um, the really meaningful questions on subjects that not a lot of clients um, or investors feel comfortable talking about? Um, and I think that's absolutely critical. 
Okay, so Chris, here comes the hardest question. This is this is the <laughs> this is the top of the mountain. So, I'm from the Deep South. Uh, it's a part of the U.S. that is uh, at least prides itself on being extremely hospitable. Uh, but when I got to Canada, Canadian hospitality blew me away so thoroughly that I had to come back to the States and tell my fellow Southerners that we needed to up our game because we were being outdone by Canadians. So the question for you is, what is one thing that Canadians can learn from Americans and one thing that Americans could take from Canadians? So being in Western Canada right now, and a number of your listeners probably don't know, but we've got a heated debate. So I think the number one thing that Americans teach can teach us Canadians is how do you get a pipeline approved and built? <laughs> that seems to be a critical stalling point for us right now. Um, you know, I, I think it's amazing. You talk about your experience here in Canada and my experience when I get a chance to go down to the, the States, whether it's on holidays with my family or whether on conferences, I would echo your amazing comments of Canada. I would echo them about the people that I've met in the U.S. And I think now when, you know, our two countries are trying to work through big trade deals and, and sort of the relationship, you know, as a whole sort of nation to nation seems to be in a different place than it was before. I think the biggest thing that we can learn from each other is is just that hospitality and, and to make sure that no matter what's happening sort of more nationally, that, you know, person to person, you know, community to community, that we always continue to open our arms and provide you know, amazing hospitality to each other. Well, we we certainly we certainly received that when when we were in Calgary. So, uh, yeah, thank thank you to to everyone I met in Canada was just just wonderful to myself and my whole family. So, the last two questions, Chris, are all about application. We want listeners uh, to be able to take the good theoretical points that you've made today, take these good high level concepts, and bring them down to the point of application in their lives. So the first question is, what would you say is a must-read book for someone who's interested in some of the things that you've talked about today? Yeah, um, I guess it would be wrong to plug your books, which I, I, I think are, are fantastic. And, you know, it's interesting. We, When you came here, we gave every one of our advisors, and one of the number one questions a number of advisors have shared with me is, you know, can we give... Uh, copies of your books to to their clients. And I think, you know, it's critical and just speaks to that basic information that's, um, I won't say basic information, but that critical information that's critical for clients to understand. Myself, uh, a book that I'm reading right now, and we, you sort of turned me on to this book is The Geometry of Wealth. And it all, it's all about how does that intersection between wealth and happiness come together. And I think that so far has been a fascinating read for for myself. So as much as all, you know, those would be some, you know, high level advice, but I'll also say for people who are just getting into reading finance books, I'll provide some not to read, which I think that's probably equally as important when you're at the bookstore, you're on Amazon, you know, the books that are, are talking about and, you know, how do you get rich quick? How do you, you know, do what no one else has done? Or how do you become like someone else? Um, you know, I think those are books to be wary about and that make sure that you read books that are first and foremost trying to help educate you 
and, and they're trying to help you become a better investor. And once you've read those books, I think it makes sense to try and perhaps see what these other books are saying, these um, promises that they're making and put them into perspective after you've read sort of those, those books that have helped educate you on what goes on. Well, the, the geometry of wealth, uh, Dr. Portnoy is a, a friend of mine and a friend of the show. Can't, can't recommend that one enough. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, it's kind of the book for me around crafting happiness and meaning uh, as it intersects with money. Uh, I cannot remember who one of the Ritholtz wealth guys, I can't remember if it was Michael Batnick or Ben Carlson. So apologies. But one of them wrote an article in the last week or so that said, don't take advice don't take financial advice from billionaires, right? You know, a lot of people when they're getting started, they go, oh, well, I'm going to look at what, you know, Warren Buffett or the next billionaire does, and I'll try and emulate that. Well, you know, that works for you when you have $100 billion, but it, it might not work well for you when you have $100,000. So their, their risks are not your risks. And so I, I love taking the tact of saying, you know, read this, not this. That's great. And then the last, yeah, I, it was a great, it was a, that was a great article. I think it was Ben Carlson, but I, I think it also there's another lesson in there. It's don't take advice from billionaires, but also don't take advice from your neighbor. Your your neighbor's goals are completely different. I, I hear so many times a big thing, as you know, Daniel, when you're up here, is you know we're legalizing recreational marijuana in Canada, and that seems to be you know every second question I, I get and. You know, don't worry about what your neighbor is invested in or how they're invested because their goals, their situation are completely different, just like the billionaires. So uh, that was a great uh, blog post. It was. So I, I can vouch I can vouch for getting questions in Canada about investing in cannabis and Bitcoin at about 10x the rate that I get them in the U.S. <laughs> there did seem to be a real a real investment fervor there around around weed uh, and crypto. And then the last question, Chris, is uh, just two or three practical steps that someone listening can take today uh, to take control of their financial lives, that they want to begin to move in a good direction. What are two or three practical, concrete steps they could take today? Yeah, so first, and we talked a lot about it through the podcast, I think educate yourself, you know, read books, read blogs, listen to podcasts. Uh, I think it, it's important that you educate yourself so you can tell the difference between people who are, are just trying to sell you something and people who are really trying to provide advice and be stewards of your wealth. The second is I would say set goals and, and have a plan and you know that plan should be flexible in terms of what you need to be, but you should stick through that plan when your emotions are starting to take over. And I think that's what having a goal and a, a plan really does. And then lastly, which is, is probably the best advice, and you know, I know you have young kids, I have you know, two young daughters, and I try and help them with this all the time, is you, know, you have to spend less than you make. And if you can spend less than you make and you can save the difference and control your savings rate, that will probably have more of a positive impact than a number of the things that we'll talk about. Yeah, every everyone wants to up their returns. No one wants to talk about uh, upping how much they set aside. Is not quite uh, not quite as sexy, is it? Um, Chris Turchan, no. absolutely wonderful to have you on the show. If people want to follow you online, where can they find you? They can follow me on Twitter at at Turchansky. That's at T U R C H A N S K Y. All right, Chris. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you.
all opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon the information participants consider reliable, and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian Trademark and the Guardian G trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018 Guardian.